Whenever you've done these things to someone in need, Jesus says, you've done this for me. I want you just to take a minute here today. I want you just to imagine for a moment that when, whenever you get the chance to use what you have to bless somebody in need, to help somebody in need, I want you just to take a moment and to think about that thought and to think about this thought that you are actually ministering to and blessing Jesus in that moment. Every single time. Every single time you're giving somebody who doesn't have something to drink, you know, something to drink, or giving somebody who's hungry food, or giving somebody who doesn't have clothes something to wear. Every single time you are ministering to and blessing Jesus. And so what Jesus is doing in Luke 4 is making it clear that so much of his mission and and his heart for the poor uh, is, is a call for us to have a radical love for them. He's, it's what, it's what he's, he's really getting at here, that like the call of God on you and me as followers of Jesus is to have a radical love for the poor. And what Jesus is really saying is that a love for me is a love for the poor. Like you can't separate the two. Love for me is a love for the poor. And if you don't love the poor, that's what Jesus is saying. If you don't love the poor, if you aren't drawn to compassion in, in, in many ways, he's saying then your love for me is in question and you have to ask some very hard questions about whether or not you really love God at all. It's good to be, be here. Uh, good to see you all. Uh, we are continuing on in a teaching series we've been in uh, called Jesus. Uh, we've been in this series since the beginning of the year. Uh, we're going to continue to be in this series all the way up until Easter Sunday. And uh, what we've been doing in this series is just looking at what it really means uh, to be followers of Jesus. And that to do that, it's going to require that we really live into three big ideas or, or three big concepts. One is to be with Jesus. Two is to become like Jesus. Three is to then do what Jesus did. So we have spent an extensive amount of time looking at those first two, and, uh, and so last week we, we shifted gears, and, uh, and we're continuing today looking at how do you do what Jesus did? How do you do the kinds of things that Jesus did in this world? Now, uh, I just, just want to give you a little bit of fair warning uh, as we get started. Uh, today's message isn't going to be super flashy, uh, like at all. Like, uh, you know, when I'm, when I'm getting ready to talk about, it, it doesn't really get a lot of airtime. Uh, especially in, you know, the suburban affluent areas like this. Uh, and so it's going to be simple and straightforward. I'm hoping to just get on base and hit a single, okay? So, um, like, honestly, I just, I want you to just kind of, it's going to mean that, 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 uh, that, that I'm going to need you to just sort of, like, engage uh, your spirits right now as, as we're talking, okay? Um, so we're looking at how do you do what Jesus did? What, is, what does that, that even mean? And so if you're taking notes today, I want you to catch this thought that the end goal of apprenticeship to Jesus is to do what Jesus did, okay? So what I mean by that, I explained some of this last week, but what I mean by that is, uh, how many of y'all know that the goal of, of like an electrician's apprentice is to graduate and become a what? A licensed electrician to begin to do the kinds of things that electricians do. A really similar uh, example would be that of like a doctor or someone with an advanced career in the medical field. Like, how many of y'all know that like doctors go through a very long, very extensive, very arduous process of training and learning uh, so that they can become a doctor, practice medicine, start to do the kinds of things that doctors do, right? So apprentices of Jesus uh, are, are, are no different. Like, like there's no difference. Like, Apprentices of Jesus, the goal is to do the things that Jesus did. And so we too go through a process 
we too go through a journey of transformation where we, we learn how to be with Jesus, and then we learn how to become like Jesus. We take on his character and his likeness, and then we start to do the kinds of things that he did. The difference between apprentices of Jesus and maybe all other types of apprentices that you would see out there somewhere is that apprentices of Jesus never graduate from any of the stages. So you don't get to this third stage of like doing what Jesus did and, and now you've, you've, you've mastered being with him and becoming like him. The thing, the thing that you got to understand about an apprentice of Jesus is that we firmly stay planted in, bo- in, in, in all three stages at the same time. So we, we continue learning how to be with Jesus. We continue learning how to become like him while we are doing some stuff, okay? All right, so what I want to do this morning is, is just address maybe some of the tension that a phrase like this can create in us, the phrase, do what Jesus did. Because we hear that phrase, and I think it sort of speaks to the complex issue of faith and works. And that's a complex issue that has existed really since the beginning of the church. There are multiple New Testament authors who address this very issue. And it's existed you know, all throughout church history. We've seen the church struggle with how to perfect this and teach it right, the tension between faith and works. Because this is, this is why there's tension. Because when it comes to salvation, we firmly believe that salvation is a free gift. Right? That it's not something you can earn. It's not something that you can be good enough to, to be able to, to achieve and receive on your own based on good merit, based on good behavior. We believe that salvation is a free gift of God through Jesus' blood shed on the cross of Calvary. Right? That's what we believe. And so the tension that, that this can create in us when we start to talk about doing what Jesus did or, or, or putting activity to our faith is it can cause us to just, to, to just struggle because we don't want to violate the, the truth that, that salvation is a free gift. And, and so while all of that is true regarding salvation and faith, we also can't ignore that there are plenty of scriptures in the New Testament that tell us to do stuff. Right? That there are, there are that, that, like to put activity to our faith, to like get after it, and, and to start to do the kinds of things that Jesus did. James tells us, the book of James tells us, that if we are just going to be somebody who, who listens to the word but doesn't do it, then, then basically we are like, like a person who looks at themselves in the mirror, walks away, and immediately forgets what they look like. The kind of person who was blown and tossed by the wind, James, James speaks about, who, who has no ability to, to be stable, can't be, be secure in, in any way. So James really tells us that, that this is what happens, this being blown and tossed by the wind, that this is what happens when you're someone who just listens and doesn't put activity to your faith. Because I think what James is really teaching us is that activity for your faith is really what anchors you. It's really what stabilizes you. If it's all just an intellectual ascent or if it's all just like, like uh, um, you know, coming and listening but never doing, then, then it's easy to be blown and tossed because activity, doing the things that Jesus did is what anchors us to him. Now, what I want to do is, is take this just a step further because I think that this is like a really important like, concept to just establish as we get started. Uh, James, in my opinion, he really speaks to this idea that truth can be deceptive. That truth can be deceptive. Maybe, you, you, may, you may wonder, like, how can that possibly be? How can truth be deceptive? I think James speaks about this, and, and this, this is really what I'm getting at. I think that all of us are naturally wired to respond to truth. Every single one of us, we are naturally wired to respond to truth. I think maybe even more so now we are prone to this as we find ourselves living in a post-truth moment. But we are all naturally wired to respond to truth. And so what can happen is you come to church and you can sit in a room just like this and listen to a sermon and truth is spoken. 
And as you're sitting here, maybe you've experienced this, all of a sudden your spirit can have a very deep, internal, almost visceral reaction. And you're going, man, like, like to, to what's been preached or what's been taught. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt your emotions just, just become moved as you're listening to the truth of God preached and proclaimed? And I think that there's a reason for that because we're naturally wired to respond to truth. And so when you have those moments where truth is spoken and it stirs a reaction inside of you, what I'm trying to tell you is I think that those moments can be a bit deceptive because it can cause you to think that something happened or that you did something, but you didn't. You can have a re- an emotional reaction to truth and it can really stir you and you can sit there and you can leave and sort of feel like you did something, but you didn't. And so the problem is sometimes we walk, we walk into church, the truth is spoken, right? Spirits react to that truth, but it can be deceiving because it feels like something happened. It feels like we did something, but we didn't. I'm gonna develop that further here. Look at this thought with me. We cannot only be people who talk about the things of Jesus we have to be people who do the things of Jesus as well, okay? I mean, the Apostle Paul writes about this. He says that the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but what? But of power. And so I think what, what we're really getting at here in a statement like this is that, is that we cannot be people who, who have an emotional reaction to truth and then do not have a follow-through. That's, that's, that's really what I mean, how the, the truth can be deceptive, is you can have an emotional reaction to truth and then not have a follow-through, not walk it out. And, and, and it can cause us to think like we've actually done something or that, or that, that we've, you know, because, because, you know, we're really stirred and we walk out of here feeling like, man, that was good. That was great. And yet there's not been a follow through. If, if, if this is how we, we live, like I think we become what James talks about, people who will be deceived by, by really, I think, what he describes as truth without action. I think, that you, I think that you and I can find ourselves deceived by this concept of truth without action. That we've received truth, we've believed truth, but we've done nothing with it. It's, it's, it's a great deception that that's okay. That that's, that that's an acceptable way to like live out our faith in Jesus. And we want to be very careful with that. The Apostle John really writes about this in 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 16. He says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. In verse 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue but with actions and in truth. And so what the Apostle John is really getting at here, what he's saying is he's saying like, look, here is what love is. This is a picture of what love is. It's Jesus on the cross. And so because this is what love looks like, you and I as followers of Jesus, we ought to do the same thing. We, we, we ought to do, do the same thing. Like love, this is what love is. This is what it means. John tells us here in, in, in 1 John 3 to be very careful to not just say or verbalize your love, but to make sure that you actually do the stuff, right? And I, and I read this verse and like it's a tough verse for me. I, it's probably a tough verse for a lot of us, right? It's a verse that like we love, we put it on a, on a coffee you know, cup or a magnet and appreciate it, but like when we really evaluate it in terms of application, it's a tough verse. And in in my opinion, John is very uncomfortably equating our love for God to our love and concern for those who are suffering. Like, he's equating them. So you love God, great. If you love God, then that means you're going to also love those who are suffering. John is really saying this. He's saying, like, how can the love of God be in us if we do not care about these things? 
How is it possible that the love of God actually is in us if we do not care about those who are suffering? And so if you're taking notes today, I want you to catch this, this big thought for the day. I think that at the heart of following Jesus is the laying down of our lives for others. At the heart of following Jesus is the laying down of our lives for others. This is what Jesus does, and so this is what his followers do as well. There is a sacrifice. There is a cost. There is a going without. There is a preferring of others over ourselves. I mean, in a world that just, that just preaches a gospel of you know, indulgence and, and live for yourself and accomplish everything you want to accomplish and, and achieve and accumulate everything you want. Like, like the gospel is upside down and it's different and the walkout of the gospel for the Christian is different. It's, it's the laying down of our lives for others. It's the saying no to, to things at times so that we can say yes to what God wants us to do and how God wants us to step into somebody's life and make a difference. I, we're, we're teaching this class. I'm teaching this class on Wednesday nights um, called, called the Missional Life Course, and so, some people in here are taking it. And, and, and one of the, the, the big thoughts in the class that I, that I love that stuck with me is, is, is this thought that mission exists because love demands it. Mission exists because love demands it. Like, we think about the mission of Jesus. Like, so so the, 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 really, the, the heart behind this course is to really help us join our life to what God is doing in the world. Like, that's what we want to do. That's what we all want to do, by the way, as, as, as Christians, as followers of Jesus. We want to join our life to what God is up to in the world. So often we want to have him join our life to what we want to do in the world, and that's backwards. But mission exists. The, the burden and the heart that God has for humanity, it exists for no other reason than for love. And so you and I, like, we are people on mission. We embody the mission of God in the world as ambassadors. We embody the mission of God, and it's motivated out of no other reason than love. Mission exists because love demands it. I want to I um, take a look at the mission of Jesus this morning, okay? I want to look at the mission of Jesus. Luke chapter 4 is, uh, is a very famous section of Scripture and, and uh, I want to look at how Jesus describes his mission on earth. Because how do we embody the mission of Jesus and the message of Jesus unless we understand what his mission really was? Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14, says this. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. Okay, so Jesus has been, uh, this, this is post the, his baptism, this is post his uh, uh, temptation in the desert uh, where, he, where he is uh, going toe-to-toe with, with the devil, and he is now be- has begun his ministry really all around the Sea of Galilee, primarily up in uh, a place called Capernaum. It says in verse 15 that he taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him. So Jesus has been doing miracles, signs, and wonders. He's been healing the sick. He's been preaching it with authority. And in verse 16, it says he went to his hometown of Nazareth. It says he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. So if you remember, this is where Jesus is from, right? We know that he was born in Bethlehem, but that his parents, Mary and Joseph, had to travel from Nazareth down to Bethlehem for the census. So he, he is raised and, and grew up in Nazareth, which is up and around uh, the region of the Sea of, of Galilee. So he went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to release 
the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him and he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus is in the synagogue of his hometown in Nazareth on the Sabbath and while he is there, the Bible tells us that he stands up, he takes the scroll of Isaiah, of the prophet Isaiah, and he begins to read. He begins to, to read a section of scripture that foretold about the coming Messiah, about the, the long-awaited, you know, uh, hoped-for Messiah that would deliver the Jewish people from all of their oppression. Jesus begins to read about this one. And so everyone who's there in the synagogue that day, they would have, they would have known these verses. This is, this is a quote out of Isaiah 61, okay? So they would have known these verses as, as scriptures that were referring to the Messiah who would one day come. And so you can imagine sort of the emotion and the mixed reaction in the room as Jesus reads these, these, these scriptures, sits down, looks at them, and begins to tell them that this 700-year-old prophecy is now finally fulfilled on this day by him. It's, it's this sort of a big deal right here. Jesus is basically saying that this prophecy was written about me, and today it is fulfilled through me. Now, at first reaction, you know, the people are, are pretty amazed. Like the story tells us, like they're pretty, they're pretty amazed at first reaction. They're sitting there going like, man, who is this guy? Like this is, this is, because he's speaking with such a power and such authority. And, 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 and then what we find is that, is that their emotions begin to change. Uh, the, the people begin to ask and question, you know, hey, hey, wait, wait a minute. Like, isn't this Joseph's son? <laughs> like, like, remember, this is his hometown. Like, hey, wasn't this like Joseph that we, you know, Joseph's son that we saw like growing up all those years that he, he's going to come back here and tell us he's the Messiah? Like, like, like what is going on here? And so, and so the Bible tells us in the story that eventually the people there in Nazareth, they became incredibly furious. The same people who knew Jesus as a boy and saw him grow up, they then led him out of the city to the edge of a cliff with the intent to throw him off and kill him. And, and then Luke tells us that Jesus performed one of his, I think, least talk about, talked about miracles, the Bible says that he, he escaped by walking through the crowd. I, I want to know that, that, like what that means. He escaped by walking through the crowd. That's pretty awesome. Like Jesus is just, he's just the man, right? Like he's just so awesome. So here's what you need to know about this story in Luke 4, if you're taking notes. Luke 4 is Jesus's mission statement. Luke 4 is Jesus' mission statement. But interestingly, do you notice that this is not a mission statement about a cross and a resurrection? It is a mission about coming to the marginalized and the vulnerable to transform their situation and to reconcile them back to God's intended purposes for their life. Luke 4 reveals that this is Jesus' identity and his purpose as the Messiah and that this is what he came to do. So 1 John 3, 8 Look at, look at this verse. It says, it says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's works. This is a very famous scripture as well. It's one that we teach on, that, that, that the reason Jesus came was to, was to destroy the works of the devil. Luke 4 really describes what the devil's look, uh, works look like. Luke 4 tells us that, that the, the devil's works are things like poverty, imprisonment, blindness, both physical and spiritual, oppression, and a world with no hope. 
And so Jesus came with a mission to destroy these things, to eliminate these things, to bring hope to those who are, who are caught in these things, who are caught in the cycles of these things. Jesus came to bring good news to the poor, freedom to those who are captive, sight to those who are blind, deliverance to those who are oppressed, and to declare the year of the Lord's favor, by the way. All a big deal. And I tell you all that because I just want you to know that like, we are meant to really do the same things. We're meant to do the same things. If you're taking notes, doing what Jesus did really means to embody the mission and the message of Jesus. This is what it means. Doing what Jesus did means embodying the mission and the message. Not just the message, but also the mission. And so here in Luke 4, Jesus starts out by saying that the Spirit of the Lord has anointed him, if you're taking notes, to bring good news to the poor. The Spirit, he says, he stands up, he reads the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Something to take note of is that Luke always refers to the poor in a literal sense. So sometimes we can read this and we can kind of just uh, uh, alleviate ourselves from any kind of personal responsibility because we're like, well, he, he was just talking about like being spiritually poor or, have, or being, you know, like, like having some sort of like spiritual poverty. No, no, no. Every time Luke talks about the poor, he's, he's talking about it in a literal sense. So the poor he's referring to are people who simply can't make ends meet, people who don't have enough food or adequate clothing or shelter or other basic necessities of life. This is who Jesus came for, and this is what Luke is talking about here in, uh, in the scriptures. I'm hoping to get on base today, right? Okay, all right. Listen to me, in Jesus' day, this is what you gotta understand, in Jesus' day, Many people viewed poverty as a sign of God's judgment, and they viewed wealth as a sign of God's blessing. And so if you were poor, then you were poor for a good reason. If you're poor, you're poor for a good reason, and this view is what caused people to not then have to bother themselves with the poor. So can you, can you th think about that for a second? If the view was that if you're poor, that's a sign of God's judgment, and if you're wealthy, that's a sign of God's blessing. I'm not sure that we have like graduated from that type of thinking. See, I think that we, we still have this, this thought process that, that actually is, is, is very wicked because it keeps us from actually doing what Jesus did, where we can sit in our wealth and in our excess and we can sit there and think that this is just God's blessing on my life and it's meant for me to just consume and use all for me. But listen, like very rarely do we ever ask the question, when we have more than enough, very rarely do we ever ask the question, what's the more for? What is the more for? What is it intended for? And we look at people who are struggling and people who are suffering and we can, we can tell ourselves that they're poor for a reason, that it's a sign of God's judgment. Or man, if they, if they, like, like anybody can work fast food, right? You, you ever heard people talk like that? It's just ridiculous. I mean, I mean, you know, like, like just, just get, get out and, and do, do some things. Like, like you know, we can, we can, we can use these, these, these thoughts and these, these sayings that are used to describe the poor as ways to alleviate us from any kind of personal responsibility. And so what we see here in Luke 4 is that the Gospels really teach of an upside-down kingdom and of an upside-down way. And that Jesus didn't come necessarily for the rich and the healthy, but that he came for the poor and the sick. He tells us over and over and over again. 
they're sitting there thinking that, that, their, that their wealth is a sign of God's blessing on their life and God's approval of them and, and, and viewing those who are in poverty as people who are judged by God. And, and you know what? We, we do the same. And what's so radical about Jesus here in the Gospels is he is, he is just confronting that right away and he is saying like, look, like this is who I came for. I came to bring good news to the poor, that you aren't actually living and sitting in judgment by God, but I've come here to actually lift you up out of your struggle. I've come to actually lift you up out of your suffering. I've come to give you deliverance. I've come to, I've come to be your, uh, uh, you know, you know the, the one who stands on your side and, and appeals for you. And so, you know, if, if you're taking notes today, I want you to look at this. This is what I, I catch out of, out of Luke 4, okay? That Jesus stands in stark contrast with the world by defining himself as someone who is on the side of the poor and the vulnerable. This is, this is what Jesus does right here in Luke 4. Look at Proverbs chapter 22 with me here. 22 through 23, it says, Do not exploit the poor because they are poor, and do not crush the needy in court. For the Lord will take up their case and will plunder those who plunder them. So, other translations to this verse say that, that God, he will exact life for life. It's a pretty tough verse to stomach. So you know what, you know what God is saying here in Proverbs 22? He is saying that he is the lawyer for the poor. He is their defense attorney in court. That if you want to take advantage of them, that there will be a day that you regret that. That's what, that's what Proverbs 22 is saying. That he takes up the case of the poor and that he sides with them. That's, it's a I mean, this is tough, right? Like, this, this, is what it, this, this, is, this is difficult to stomach. Parker Palmer says this. He says, the more we know about another story, the harder it is to hate or harm that person. And this is why poverty can't just be something that is just, just a... Uh, a generalization. You have to have faces with it. You gotta have like people you know. You gotta have people you see. That's why what we do on, on Wednesdays when we help people with food, like I mean, I mean the 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 people who, who serve and volunteer, they know these people's names. Like they know them. They know their stories. They've prayed with them. They they begin to hear like their journey and everything they've gone through. Like it's not just poverty that we're helping with and hunger that we're helping with. We're helping actual people who have stories, people that God sees, people that he stands on the side of and is their defense attorney in court. And so what Jesus is doing in Luke 4 is making it clear that so much of his mission and, and his heart for the poor uh, is, is a call for us to have a radical love for them. He's, it's what, it's what he's, he's really getting at here, that like the call of God on you and me as followers of Jesus is to have a radical love for the poor. I read a book um, in the last couple years by a pastor that I follow. And this guy was, was writing about his wedding day and telling the story about, you know, his, his father-in-law was the minister who, who uh, performed the ceremony on their wedding and, uh, day. And, and he said that, uh, he began to describe the ceremony a little bit and, and some of the words that his father-in-law used. And, and he said that uh, his father-in-law used a statement that he had never heard uh, at a wedding um, before and has never heard since. And he said that his father-in-law looked at him and, and his, his wife, or his, or his bride, as he was giving a blessing towards the end of the ceremony, and he said to them, he said, I pray, I pray that you would have a radical love for the poor. I pray that you would have a radical, this is at their wedding, right? Like this is at their wedding as they're standing there at the altar. He says, I, my prayer is that you would have a radical love for the poor. 
And he begins to go on and explain it, and, and you'll have this on the screen. He begins to, to essentially explain it like, like this, because it's only through learning to love people who can't love you back that you understand what love really is. You see, we think we love. We think we know what love is. But when, when you love for a return or for a reciprocation, it isn't the highest form of love. That's really what his father-in-law was getting at, right? This isn't the highest form of love. The highest form of love is when you love without an expectation of it being returned to you. This is why Jesus gives that parable that I spoke on weeks ago about, you know, at the Pharisee's house with, with the, you know, the, the meal being prepared. And, and he begins to talk about the kind of, the kind of tables he prepares are different than the kind of tables uh, that they prepare. And he says, hey, like, don't, don't just invite your friends. Like, invite those who, who, are, who are poor, those who are needy, those who are crippled, those who are lame, those who are homeless. That's what he says. He goes, the people you've invited, they're the, kind of ones, they're the kinds of ones who are going to invite you to, to their house and pay you back for what you've done for them. But hey, invite these people who can't ever pay you back. That's what real love is. That's what Jesus gets at here. It's the kind of, and, and so this pastor in his book, he, he talks about this idea, his, his father-in-law telling them, like, I pray that you'd have this radical love for the poor. And he goes on and explains that because this is the kind of love that would completely transform the experience of every relationship you have in your life especially your relationship with your spouse, if you could love in a way where it wasn't about reciprocation and return, like I'll do this to get this, but it was just love. It was just, it was just to love because you get to love that person. If you're taking notes today, look at this. I mean, the, the poor are not just projects you help, they are people you love. They are not just projects you help, they are people you love. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells a parable about what it will be like when he returns for his people. Basically, he says that when he returns, he's going to separate those who are his from those who are not his, right? It's going to separate the sheep from the goats. And he'll speak to the sheep on that day, and he, he will say to those who belong to him, in verse 35, for I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Verse 37, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And so the, again, the parable, the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Whatever you did for them, you did for me. When did we see Jesus in prison? When did we see Jesus hungry? When did we see Jesus without clothes? Whenever you've done these things to someone in need, Jesus says, you've done this for me. I want you just to take a minute here today. I want you just to imagine for a moment that when, whenever you get the chance to use what you have to bless somebody in need, to help somebody in need, I want you just to take a moment and to think about that thought and to think about this thought that you are actually ministering to and blessing Jesus in that moment every single time. Every single time you're giving somebody who doesn't have something to drink, you know, something to drink, or giving somebody who's hungry food, or giving somebody who doesn't have clothes something to wear, every single time you are ministering to and blessing Jesus. And so what Jesus is really saying is, that, is this, it, you know, again, 
not the easiest message, but, but so I appreciate you just being very gracious today to receive this from the Lord. I, what Jesus is really saying is that a love for me is a love for the poor. Like you can't separate the two. A love for me is a love for the poor. And if you don't love the poor, this is what Jesus is saying. If you don't love the poor, if you aren't drawn to compassion in, in, in many ways, he's saying then your love for me is in question and you have to ask some very hard questions about whether or not you really love God at all. And so when you see somebody in need, let me just ask you a, a question to think about. When you see somebody in need, do you have compassion for them like you would if you saw Jesus that way? Right? You have compassion on them like you would if you saw Jesus that way. Here's why that question's important if you're taking notes. is because when you experience the radical love of God, it is meant to awaken in you a love for the poor and suffering. That's part of what it's meant to do. That's not, it's not everything, right? It, it awakens a lot of things in us. But one of the things it does, the radical love of God that we receive through Jesus, that free gift we talked about, it is meant to awaken in us a radical love for the poor and the suffering. Look at, look at just some verses here. Proverbs 19, 17. He, is, he, he who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he will reward him for what he has done. So what Solomon's talking about, he's saying you're serving God when you're serving other people's needs. You're serving God when you're doing this. When you're serving people in need, this is a way of you serving the Lord. To follow Jesus is to love the poor and the suffering. That's what Solomon's getting at here. Proverbs 31 uh, eight through nine says, speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly, defend the rights of the poor and needy. This is God's heart, that you and I would take up an active love, care, defense, and support for people who are marginalized and on the edges of poverty. This, this is God's heart right here. Proverbs fourteen thirty one: he who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. You know, contempt is pretty much the same as hate. That he who oppresses the poor shows hatred towards their maker, their creator. Psalm 140, verse 12, I know that the Lord secures justice for the poor and upholds the cause of the needy. So he sees the pain and the suffering that people go through. Psalm 9:9, the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Isaiah 1:17, learn to do right. Learn to do right. Seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Learn to do what is right. So we could do this all morning, right? There's, there's hundreds. I mean, there's so many examples. I could give you many other verses like this. And what is obvious in Scripture is that God is concerned with the poor. And he's very concerned that his people have his heart for those who are in need. Yeah. The challenge of the scriptures is that our hearts need to be where Jesus' heart is. That's what, we're, that's what we're challenged to do, is to put our heart in unity with his heart, that our heart beats for what his heart beats for, that we care about the things he cares about. And when our hearts are in unity with his, we can then see and do some amazing things together with Jesus. That's the heart. And so I just ask you today, like, and it's, there's, no, there's no shame, there's no judgment, there's no, none of that. None, this, this, I'm not being heavy-handed with you today. 
But I just wonder, like, where is your love at when it comes to the poor? Where would you say your love is at? Look at this thought with me. The scriptures are clear that the people of God are people who care about those who are suffering and therefore do something about it. Therefore do something about it. You know the inherent problem with sermons? I realize this because I do this a lot. Is that if a sermon is really encouraging, then everybody leaves encouraged. And if a sermon is really challenging, then everybody leaves feeling really guilty. Sometimes those aren't the most helpful paradigms to be in when you leave church. Um, Let me just tell you, like, there's absolute grace, okay? No matter where we're at on this, there's grace. But if we could, instead of feeling encouraged or guilty, could just feel the freedom to be honest this morning, what would we say about ourselves? So we don't have to live in shame and guilt this morning. What would we say about ourselves if we could just be honest? Could we just honestly say this morning that our love probably needs to grow? Probably needs to grow. Let me give you some practicals as we, um, I start to wind this down. Justice starts by seeing those in need and doing what is in your power to do. So you've got to first see them. You've got to notice them. You can't just walk by them and not notice people. And then it's doing what is in your power to do. Let me just acknowledge for a moment, you know, that the issues of poverty in our world are incredibly complex, if you didn't know. We don't always know how to bring real solution and remedy to it. It can seem like such a massive problem. We don't know where to start, who to help, what organizations to give to. We don't know what the, you know, what are the things that are going to bring real change and transformation. Like, like, these are complex questions. Have you ever thought about these things? Like, how do you really know what to do? And and so I just want you to look at this thought, and like, if, if, honestly, if this, is, if this is all you take away today, talking about poverty, I want it to be this right here. We must be very careful to not hide behind the complexities of poverty as a reason for doing nothing. It is very complex. It is not easy. It is not a simple solution, right? There, there are systemic issues. There's issues, you know, it, it, political issues, you know, that, that can perpetuate a lot of this. There's societal issues. There's things that we just can't address you know, ourselves, like, I don't have endless money, you don't have endless money, as a collective whole, we don't have endless resources to just fix every problem, and so what can happen sometimes is, is, is those complexities can be things we hide, hide behind as a reason for then just doing nothing. Doing what Jesus did starts by doing what's in your power to do. What is in, what is in your personal power to do? So what would it look like to spend a little less on eating out or on coffee so that you could develop a fund to be able to help those in need whenever you see them? What would it look like for you to serve the poor once a week, once a month, or once a quarter in some way? What would it look like for you to do that? You know, I already told you we do this weekly here. Every, every Wednesday uh, from 2 to 4, I know, you know the time may not be perfect for you, but you know, if you are interested, there are things that can be prepared ahead of time there's, things that we, there's ways to work you in to be a part of this. What would it look like for you to serve the poor once a week, once a month, or once a quarter? What would it look for you to be intentional in saying, I want to do what Jesus did, so I'm going to serve the poor? Uh, you know, we, we are partnered with an organization called YMCA Supportive Housing. We help them you know, uh, multiple times of year where our church goes down. We sponsor the meal. We prepare the meal, and then we serve the meal to people who are in transitional housing. It's, it's wonderful. Uh, ministry, it's, it's very, very practical, very hands-on. What would it look like for you to serve uh, those who are in need? 
Uh, another great organization that we don't have a close connection to, but that I am very familiar with, is an organization in town called Joppa. They work very close with the homeless, uh, you know, and, and it's a great organization to get involved in. There are many. What would it look like for you to actually be intentional? You know that, you know that uh, and, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to, to beat on people today, okay? Like, I, man. Um, you know, like, sometimes what's concerning is, you know, we put out opportunities um, to serve the poor, and... Um, and we don't always get a lot of, a lot of uh, people taking us up on those opportunities. And so we can, we can promote like YMCA Supportive Housing for weeks and weeks and weeks because nobody's signing up. Or we can put out that we need help on Wednesdays because the same, you know, like six people are the same ones doing it every single week. And, and we get nobody, you know, very few people saying, hey, I, I want to do that. I wanna, I, I'm, not, I'm trying to beat on you. I'm just trying to say, look, like, listen, like, like, this is our responsibility. It's not just the responsibility of a few. Not only is this our collective responsibility as a church, it's our personal responsibility to see the needs of others, to make room and margin in our lives so that we can actually step in and help people. I wonder, like, what would it look like for you to have a thought-out plan for when you either walk past or drive past somebody on the street who asks you for money. Have you ever thought about like what will you do and what will you say? Do you have a thought out process for how you'll respond to somebody who asks you for help? Or somebody you drive by who's, who's asking for money just, just sort of panhandling? Do you have a plan? Do you have a plan for how you respond? What if you're like me and you never carry cash? Sorry, I don't have, like do you have a better plan than just saying like, sorry man, I don't have any cash right now. Do you have a better plan than that? You know, that's, that's why we've, we've, we've introduced in the past these things called blessing bags where the church, you know, we, we created these bags, you know, these, these gallon-sized, you know, Ziploc bags that were filled with all kinds of different supplies and things that, that could be a blessing to somebody in need, you know, and, and allowed you to kind of, you know, add, add your own personal touch to them. You could, you could add, you know, some, some cash or a gift card in there too, but there's things like toothbrushes and, you know, um, you know, um, uh, I mean, it's just packed with, with all sorts of just, just useful items that would help somebody who is homeless or somebody who is in need. Do you just have, like, I, it would be wise for us to have, like, a thought-through plan. Like, like, what are we actually going to do when we see somebody in need? Or what am I actually going to do when someone asks me for money? How do I help? How do I, how, do I have a better plan than to just say, I, I don't have any cash right now? Or, 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 sorry, not right now, not right now. I want to just tell you today that there may be more in your power to do than you think. We've got, to ju- we've got to start recognizing as followers of Jesus that we are the front line of practical care for those in need. We're the front line of practical care for those who are in need. Let me just give you some stats. You guys can start to come up, I think. This is from UNICEF. Nearly half of the world, 3 billion people, live on less than $2.50 per day. Nearly half of the world. 1.3 billion people in the world live in what we call extreme poverty, less than a dollar per day. 1 billion children live in extreme poverty. 2 million children die every year from preventable diseases caused by poverty. 805 million people in the world do not have enough food to eat. 750 million people in the world do not have clean water to drink. Real deal stats. I have an opportunity to take those who are interested on a mission trip to Mexico here in August. And it's a place that my parents are going to be for the summer. You know, they're missionaries typically in Trinidad and Tobago, but they are... um, 
going to be in Tijuana, Mexico for June, July, and August. And it's a place that I took my two daughters with me uh, last August. The three of us just did like a daddy-daughter mission trip. Uh, we had done Disney World earlier that summer, and I was just like, yeah, I don't want my, my kids need to know. Uh, like, this isn't, this isn't, you know, normal, what normal kids do. And so... Um, it was a great experience, as, right? It was a great experience uh, for us three. Um, but we saw some unbelievable moments of absolute poverty. And uh, we were able to go and just be a blessing, to, be a, a, to shine our light, to hug people who maybe most people wouldn't hug. Uh, and, and I remember it being like, you know, still a big deal about COVID and all that. And tell you what, like I never once thought about COVID when there was a little kid who was just full of dirt they needed a hug, you know? Like, I, just, I was like, they just need Jesus. They need to know that somebody loves them and cares for them. And so we went and ministered to people in the city dump who live there, like have shacks built there. And uh, we did all kinds of things. Um, blessed some pastors who just live in extreme poverty themselves, doing the work of Jesus. And so it's in my heart to try to provide an opportunity for us to do that. And I, I don't, I mean, we just made the decision as a board on Friday. And so I don't even have anything special to put on the screen for you. Um, but I'm going to do an informational meeting the next two Sundays right after church for 15 minutes just to give you more info on what we're doing and to let you decide if it's something you want to be a part of. And, uh, and we're just going to go from there. We're just going to go from there. So you could plan on that the next two Sundays. Locally speaking, in Des Moines, the city of Des Moines has a poverty rate of right around 19%. That's pretty important. That's pretty big. I mean, in my opinion. I mean, maybe, maybe average, but... I mean, that means like two out of every 10 people that we, that we, that we walk past is um, living right now in disheartening poverty. So just to be clear, when we're talking about poverty, we're talking about uh, people who do not have enough money to put food on their table, uh, don't have enough money to provide for their children or to pay their rent. Like that's what we are talking about. And so around us every single day are people who are living like this. People that God, listen to me, people that God has an agenda to desperately love. And I just think that we have to get into alignment with Jesus' heart. We've got to get into alignment with Jesus' heart so that we can do what he has asked for us to do. Look at this thought. Love for the poor and suffering starts with personal responsibility and generosity. And generosity. So like I said, it's not just our collective problem as a church. This is my problem. This is my, this is my, absolutely my problem. And this is your problem. Jesus is asking us to take personal responsibility for how we care for poor people in our community. You know, we live in a really strange world, if you didn't notice. No matter what you make, you can always find people who make more. And no matter what you make, you can live up to a limit that causes you to feel poor. And I understand that we live in a world where poverty is a complex issue. And the vast majority of, us in this, majority of us in this room would probably say, I could use a little bit more money, not less. I get that. Like, I do get that. But what I want to challenge you with is that in the middle of wealth and poverty, in the middle of that space, wealth and poverty, you and I have a responsibility, a deep responsibility to find margins so that we can begin to care for people in a personal way. So I'm not just talking to people who have lots of extra in here today. I am talking to you, but I'm talking to all of us. Like we have a deeply personal responsibility to find the margins 
in our life and in our budgets and in our time. I've told you before that it's impossible for God to use you if you don't have margin in your finances and margin in your schedule. It's not, it's like practically speaking, it's not possible. So if you're running always at a pace where like your life is, it's just redlined. There's no room for anything extra. There's no room for like divine encounters and appointments for God to just interrupt your day with, with like somebody in need that you could be, you know, uh, you know, uh, bring hope to. If you're running at such a pace, like you can't, you literally have no room to be used by God. And if your finances are doing the same, it's no, it's no different. And so we have a responsibility to find the margins so then we can actually proactively be looking for the moments that God wants to use us to step into people's lives and make a difference, right? That's good truth today, by the way. It's good truth. We have to take personal responsibility. Last thought right here. If we are not a place of good news to the poor, then what are we doing? If we're not a place of good news to the poor, then what are we doing? Like our church, I'm so proud of our church. I really believe that this is true of us. I really believe that we are a place uh, of good news to the poor, that like, man, Jesus for sure loves you and things don't have to be that way. It's something we are proactively uh, participating in and aligning our church with. You should be proud of your church in this effort. We need more of you to get involved. But this, is, this needs to be true, not just of our church. It needs to be true of us individually, that we would be a place, that I would be a place of good news to the poor. And if I'm not, then what am I even doing? I have a, a real strong conviction in me, a real strong belief. I don't really know what to do with it other than I just, I just, I just really want people to once again say about Christians that we love hurting people. There's a lot of things people say about Christians. You know, there's a lot of things. There's, there's good and bad. And I just want, I just want like, like, you know, one of the first things that comes out of somebody's mouth when they describe God's people is that they love hurting people. They may say Christians are crazy, and they may, you know, we believe in resurrections and all that kind of stuff. That's fine. Like, I don't care about that. It's, they may be like, man, they're, they're a bunch of weirdos. They believe all this crazy stuff, but like, that's fine. What I care most is that like people who are far from God and do not know Jesus, that they would say, man, those people love hurting people. I'll give my life to have this reputation. I will give my life to have this personal reputation that people would say of me, man, Pastor Jordan loves hurting people. Like this is, this is why I don't know that it's always a good idea for me to handle the benevolence fund because like I just give away money. I just want to help people. Like I just want to, honestly, like, I'm not even apologizing for it. Like I, I just want to help people. I, I, I'm like, man, sure, let's do it. Like I almost never turn people away. I, I, like I just want to, I'll give, I will give my life to have this reputation that I am a man who loves hurting people and I'll do whatever it takes to help them get out of that, that season or that cycle that they're in. Huh. That's a good feeling sometimes when you just know you've released what God wanted you to release. Um, I talk to people all the time who go through dry seasons and they're spiritually, you know, and they feel like God is distant and God is far. You ever had that? You ever just felt like seasons where God is close and then seasons where you're like, I just don't even know where he is. You pray, your prayers hit the ceiling. You can't find him. You just, like, I, you know, you ever just felt like a little bit of a dry spell, dry season when it comes to the things of God? And what I'll tell people sometimes is I'll say, you know, if you want to find Jesus, I know right where he's at. If you want to find Jesus, I know where he is. He's with the poor. He's with the suffering. He's with the hurting. 
If you want to be with Jesus, I know where he's at. If you want to become like Jesus, I know where he's at. And if you want to do what Jesus did, I know where he's at. He's with the hurting and the suffering. He's with those who are in need. A love for Jesus is a love for the hurting. It's a love for the poor. And when I turn my heart off from the poor, when I turn my heart off from the hurting, I turn my heart off from Jesus. And may that never be true of us. May that never be true of us. If you ever wondered what kind of church we have, I hope this sermon today lets you know. The kind of church we are and the kind of church like we're going to be unapologetically, we will be a church that cares about those who are hurting and those who are suffering. And that's the type of person I'm trying to disciple you into. I'm trying to grow you into. Would you stand with me this morning? Do you know that I always get nerves every Sunday like before I teach. Like I think that's probably a good thing, you know? Um, I just feel the responsibility of handling the Word of God correctly. But I felt like some extra nerves this week. You know? Because there's ways, like, we, we think and view poverty that, like, I'm, I'm realizing I'm just, I'm just teaching at mindsets and belief systems, and those things just got to go. And we need to just see people with needs and just be like, man, these are people created in the image of God, and I need to do what's in my power to do to help them, and I need to take personal responsibility. Amen? So the Gospel of Luke tells another story as we close here, and it tells a story about a man who, uh, who was crippled. He was lame. And his friends, they brought him to see Jesus in hope that Jesus would heal them, heal, heal, heal their friend. And they get to this house, and the house is completely packed. There's no way to get in. And so you probably know the story, right? They, they do like the complete unthinkable. They climb up on the roof of the house and create a hole in this man's roof. You know, like, who's, who, right? who, who, who's paying for that? That's what, I, that's what I want to know. Who's paying my deductible? They, put a, they make a hole in this man's house, and they lower this crippled man, this lame man, down to, to the feet of Jesus. This place is packed. People are watching. And you know the story, right? Jesus looks at this man who's crippled, and he says, he says to this man, he says, he says, your sins are forgiven. And everyone's just like, what? This is scandalous. Who can forgive sin, right? Jesus can. And so he, heals, he forgives this man's sin, and then he says, he says, uh, get up, take up your mat, and walk, and heals him miraculously. Everyone's baffled. And I've always just read this story with this belief that the man gets healed because of his friends bringing him to Jesus. That's how I've always just thought of this story. But I wonder if the story could also be read a little bit differently. Could we, could we consider for a moment that, that it was the crippled man who brought his four friends to Jesus, that it was his condition, it was because of the situation he was in, it was because Jesus comes near to those who are suffering and those who are in need. And because of his issue, he was able to bring four friends to Jesus and they found their forgiveness and they found their healing. They found their redemption. Look, like this is how we have to understand it. That if you want to know where Jesus is, he's with these people. You want to find him, that's where he's at. Would you bow your heads with me this morning as we close? If you're here today and you just sense and feel the spirit of God moving, on you today to make some changes, to make some shifts. And you would just say, Pastor Jordan, my heart needs to shift in this area when it comes to loving the poor. 
and having a heart for the things that God has a heart for. And, and you're saying, I got to get after doing what Jesus did. Could I just see your hand this morning? Could I just see you today? It's, it, I mean, I think it's most of us, right? I mean, there's so many hands in this room this morning. Father, I pray in this room right now that there would be a special grace that would be felt in here, that would settle in this room. I pray for a special grace in this room right now over this church, over these people, to be your hands and your feet, to be the people of God who make a difference in the lives of those who are hurting and suffering. God, I pray for a sweet new season over this church. I pray for a sweet new season over every person in the sound of my voice to step into the pain and the dysfunction, the cycles of oppression and difficulty, God, and you would allow us to bring hope, to bring transformation, to bring change, to bring to make a difference into the lives of these people that you love so radically. So I pray for a radical love of God to be felt by us. And then I pray that that radical love would flow out of us into the lives of people who are hurting and suffering. May we make a difference for you, oh God. And may we love the people that you love, oh God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen and amen.